right, welcome everybody. We are gonna get rolling. If you have your packets, what you need to do is uh, page 48 and 49 if you're not there already. Uh, we are on page 48 and page 49. The title of this breakout is Looking Good Versus Living Forever, Preparing Your Soul for Eternity. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Dave. This is Megan. We're married. We only, only at a Christian conference, you know, you get cheers. You're like, yes, we're married. We have four children. Someone is watching them this weekend for us. Um, we have four kids. Uh, the joke is that we're really comfortable having children, but we're scared of pets. That's our home is like. True. Um, we have four kids. Someone's watching them this weekend. Uh, as parents, we um, love being parents, and we have a delightful home. One of the joys of being parents, one of, the, of our, um, of course, hobbies, is we regularly, on the regular, find ourselves reading children's books. And I think children's books have like a standard way that they're written. Uh, most sort of fairy tale ones, every, anyway, have, even though they all have a different beginning, all of them have the exact same ending. I bet you can tell me how the fairy tale ending of a children's book ends, right? No matter how they start, the ending sounds a little bit like, quote, and they live happily ever after, right? Are your kids' books written the same as mine? <laughs> Were you raised on those as well? That's how the story goes. At least that's how the story is supposed to go. Kids' books. I read them to my kids, um, but as one of the things that inspired this breakout is um, the older you get and the longer you live, there's this weird thing that happens. What I mean is that there's a gap that grows between happily ever after and the actual world that you live in. There's a gap between that's the way the story is supposed to go and the world that we kind of just, the situations that we land in and we find ourselves in. And what we see as a family and what we see as campus ministers, we've been doing this for a while, is just an increased sense of anxiety, uh, unsettledness, the uptick in mental health issues, and you might even say an increase in what I will call jadedness among Christians, among young adult Christians. And yes, there's an increase in mental health vocabulary and anxiety. That's not particularly what this breakout is about. Um, so let me make a couple of caveats and clarifications about what we have in mind. This workshop is not how to get rid of sadness in your life, okay? Um, this breakout is not how to get rid of grief. As a matter of fact, there is a lot to grieve and to have a sense of lament about in a world. And there's a healthy, good place for that. Um, this is not about how to live a carefree life, okay? You're not going to leave here skipping and backflips down the hallway or down the stairs. And that would be dangerous anyway. <laughs> Here's what this is about. Um, this gathering, this breakout, is about a neglected ingredient that makes for peace in your life and in my life, okay? Think of it like a vitamin that you have to get in order to grow or a part of a recipe if you like baking a cake and if you're like, oh, we didn't put that in and the whole thing falls flat. That's what this breakout is about. This breakout is about the ingredient and the ingredient is what the Bible says about eternity, all right? <laughs> So our proposition is that perhaps 
a lot of the spiraling that has taken place culturally has to do with the fact that there's a neglected ingredient that makes for peace in a world that is crazy, and that's eternity. Let me set the stage for you. This is on page 48, I believe, in your um, handouts. You'll find like a little bit of a self-reflection questionnaire. I know some of you are having PTSD because of tests and finals. <laughs> this is not a test. This is not an exam. As a matter of fact, this is not I'm gonna, not asking you to share this whatsoever with anyone. What I want you to do is just take a brief moment as we begin. I want you to fill this out. You'll need a pen or a pencil for this breakout together. So start on page 48. And what I want you to do is just strongly agree or dis strongly disagree, shoot from the hip, give the first sort of instinct response that comes to these, I don't know how many questions, and then we will, that will set the stage for us and what we're talking about. Go ahead and do that. Well, you just have like two minutes of silence to do that, okay? Go for it and we'll call you back together. All right, well that information is just for you. I'm not gonna ask you to share it with me or anybody else, do it with it what you like, it's for self-reflection. It will also provide self-reflection as we go through. On page 49, here's where we're going, on the top of page 49, there's a quote from the scriptures from Ecclesiastes. The Bible says this, it says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. I, I'm not going to unpack all of that for you, but what I want you to take from that is that human beings thriving apart from an eternal purpose does not compute. Do you understand what I'm saying? As a human being, God has made you and set in you this concept to think about living forever. It's it, you can't be disconnected from that eternal purpose. And that's where we're going. So there are two parts to the breakout. There are two points on that sheet. First, we're going to do a thought experiment because the Bible gives us two images to ponder in the related to this. Here's the first thing. This is on page 49. We're going to first do the experiment of thinking. Let's talk about facing death if this life is all there is. Okay, there are two, two halves. Here's the first half. We're going to think about, the Bible gives us a picture of facing death if this life is all there truly is. I think one of the best images in the Bible of that is a person, a tragedy, someone named Jezebel. It's printed right there for you. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to read from this passage in your packets in 2 Kings. Let me set the stage. Jezebel is a queen in Israel. FYI, Jezebel is a beautiful, powerful, and wicked woman. People generally don't think, what shall we name the baby? Jezebel. The reason for that is she's a person who is known for getting whatever she wants. She's somebody who instituted pagan worship throughout Israel. She's known for killing hundreds of God's priests and people. And she's known for being the person who has helped to turn the hearts of the nation away from the worship of the one true God. Okay? So here's what we're going to read. We're going to read that after years and years of living for doing whatever she wants, thank you very much, we read this, this is the final moments of her life. This is a person who's lived for whatever she wants, and here's how she faces death. Ready? It says this, when Jehu came to Jezreel, here's her character, Jezebel heard of it, and so she painted her eyes, and she adorned her head, and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? 
And he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Huth, two or three hundred or two or three eunuchs looked out at him and he said to throw her down. And so they threw her, that's Jezebel, down and her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Yikes, I probably should have given you a trigger warning. <laughs> what we have here is those verses show a very graphic, sad end to a person's life. And what I want you to see here is the detail that's in verse 30. Please look at verse 30. For Jezebel, here's the image, the pressure of life closes in and her wickedness has caught up to her. That's what's happening. Literally, people are coming for her because of the way she has lived. Justice has found her and there are problems all around. And how does she deal with problems? Do you see the image of Jezebel? She's about to die and the Bible says that she does her makeup. Literally, the Hebrew says she painted her eyes and prettied up her head. And that's how she faces death. And there's an image that we want to help you ponder here, my friends. The Bible doesn't tell us why she does this, but it gives you this picture. It gives you this image of a wasted life that is disconnected from the worship of the one true God. And, and here's the point. If you detach eternity... If you try to disconnect yourself from that or just forget about it, if you face death, which we all will, as if this life is all there is, certain things will characterize you like Jezebel. The first is that you'll have and you'll, you'll, you'll be focused on an outward adorning. So we see Jezebel, she adorns herself outwardly. So final moments of life. And we don't see her rectifying her relationships. We don't see her praying for mercy. There's not a concern for her, the inward, for her soul, but the focus is on outward, her image. So, and consider, Dave said this, her whole life has been wrapped up in her power and her beauty and her glory. And she plans to go to the grave, making that her final image, in playing the part of the beautiful, powerful queen. And what she does here, it's incredibly insightful about the human condition. When you live like life there is all there is, outward things take priority over inward things. Or another way to say it, your image becomes more significant than your soul. Um, and that's often because we feel like who we are on the outside is a reflection of what, of what we value on the inside. So our, our youngest child, we have a big costume bin, and our youngest child in particular loves raiding the costume bin. But one of his favorite things to dress up as is a ninja. And he will run around the house saving the Roy's family from all of the evil in our home. Uh, but he gets, he gets really into character and he gets really upset if we call him by his name. He's like, that's not my name. I'm a ninja. Like he gets, he gets really into it. And uh, kids do this all the time, right? They become their costume. But it's not just kids. It's not just kids. Humans do this all the time. We take great care in how we display of our, our, ourselves. So think of it this way. We are all carefully curating our costume. Mm -hmm. And this is the heartbeat of social media. You choose what others see, and that's who you are. Uh, there are filters for your photos. There's a billion-dollar industry for anti-aging. And time and money and energy <clears throat> goes into our clothing choices and our hairstyles and weight loss products and YouTube and TikTok, they are filled with makeup tutorials targeting 10-year-olds. Hmm. 
our culture is obsessed with physical appearance. But outward adorning, we see that in Jezebel, but outward adorning, it can be bigger than just your physical appearance. So Jezebel, she wanted to control how she was remembered, how she was seen and known and remembered. And, and we do that too. Some people, some of you long to be remembered as the athletic one, or I'm the funny one of the group, or the faithful friend, smartest one in the room, the obedient son or daughter. So, you know, what, what about you? Take a moment and consider. I'd love for you to just jot some, jot some things down. How do you long to be seen or known or remembered by others? I want people to view me as fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Jot something down on your paper or your phone. We're going to come back to it. And as you do that, just, just to be clear, many of the things that you might jot down are not bad in and of themselves. You know, beauty, intelligence, humor, they're wonderful gifts. Athleticism, being a faithful friend, uh, they're wonderful gifts. They're often ways that God has made you. But and it's not necessarily godly to say, I don't care what other people think about me. I'm never going to shower again, ever. No, that's, that's not necessarily better. But just like Jezebel, we can cherish our image more than, more than anything else. So just take 30 seconds. And so that was, I want to be remembered. As... Fill in the blank. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. It's like I said, we can cherish our image more than anything else. Jesus put it this way. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or another way to say it, what does it profit a man to gain the image of his dreams and the respect of a watching world but forfeit his soul? And now consider how this image, how you long to display yourself, consider how does that affect your day-to-day -day life? You might think it doesn't. It does. So here's some, here are a few possible ways. You hide certain things from other people or act differently in front of family or friends. You replay conversations of your, in your head and you're always second-guessing everything you said and how it came across. You base your clothing choices on who you're planning on seeing that day. You slave over every homework assignment and trying to perfect it. Or you frantically clean your dorm room or your apartment because you know your friend is dropping by. That's me. Um, perhaps some of the unsettledness that you feel in the day-to-day -day is related to our attempts to adorn ourselves with the image of our choice. Yeah, and that, that's certainly true for me. When my image feels in jeopardy, I can feel all sorts of anxiety and frustration and fear. And I want to encourage you, next time that happens, rather than trying to fix the image, stop and ask yourself, what am I trying to defend here? What image feels so powerful and important that I need, that I need to, to defend? That stress, that unsettledness, that fear of how you look before other people, God is actually being kind to you. He is. He is reminding you that it is your soul that matters and your soul lasts forever. And that's gonna take us to the next subpoint, point, uh, crafting, a, crafting a temporal identity. So consider again with me that vignette of Jezebel and her makeup. Now let's consider how long did her makeup last? Final swipe of eyeliner, <clears throat> what happens? Now, we didn't include this in your packet, but if you keep reading that story in 2 Kings 9, it's kind of gruesome. Her body is devoured by dogs, and it says within an hour or two, only a few bones remain. Verse 37 actually says, no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. 
She is unrecognizable. Literally, nothing is left of her beyond a few bones. Her beauty, her physical beauty, is gone. But what about her power, her influence? You know, she was a powerful queen that got her way. Well, ironically, the very people that served her, that she had power and control over, those, those eunuchs, they were the ones that turned against her and threw her out the window. Her power, her influence, it's gone. Everything that this woman lived for and gave herself to eroded. None of it lasted. And this passage reminds us that outward images are always temporary. Our kids like to build sandcastles at the beach. Maybe you can conjure up some memories, happy memories of building a sandcastle at the beach of your own. Uh, and what happens when you finish? You stand up and you, you admire your work, but then the tide starts to come in and, and one of the towers starts to collapse, right? And you know, our kids will like scramble to rebuild that one. And as they're doing that, this, this other tower over here, that one falls down and they're scrambling to, to rebuild that one as more and more waves come in and these kids, they're trying to hold on to this thing that they've, they've created. Some of them are, they're having a great time. They know, oh, this is just what happens to sandcastles. But, but some of them are crushed. They are devastated. This thing that they've created is collapsing. And sandcastles that you and I know, they're never meant, they were never meant to last. But if you don't understand that, then building a sandcastle isn't very fun. It's, it's just frustratingly painful. And God has made the world that there are only a few things that will last forever. And your image, just like Jezebel's and just like that sandcastle, it will one day be gone. Your soul will not. Your soul will last forever. And it could be that some of the stress and anxiety and unsettledness in life that you feel is because you're trying to maintain this outward image that will one day fade away, that is currently fading away. And perhaps you see that in the things that you give yourself to. Here are, here are a few examples. Physical appearance. If you prioritize the, your image and your physical appearance, the clothes that you bought last year aren't in style of this year. And your body is changing and it, it will age. What about your schoolwork? You, you craft an identity as this diligent, hardworking student. Well, that, that A that you got the last test on the last test, that doesn't count for this upcoming test. You got to study for that one too. And, and what about when your professor, you thought you did great and your professor gives you negative feedback or, or um, you don't do well, your, your, your group project, they will bring down you and your image. Or in a few years, consider this. No one will care about your GPA. You will not even care. No one will care. What if your identity is in people liking you, seeing you as a faithful friend? Well, you're going to have conflict. You're going to be misinterpreted. You cannot control how other people see you. And expectations change. You cannot please everyone all the time. Our, our, the way that we long to define ourselves and create ourselves, it's always fading. But when you live like this world is all there is, you will begin to neglect one of the things that does last forever, and that's your soul. And instead, you'll try to craft this sandcastle, this fragile, temporal identity. So look back at the thing on your paper that you jotted down, that outward identity that you can try to craft for yourself. Take a minute to consider, what's the expiration date for that? How do you have to keep maintaining it? How is it fading? even now or in the future. Just take a, 
take a minute to think about that. I think one of the things that we see often is that the stuff that preoccupies most of Christian culture, even <coughs> mental bandwidth, are these outward, temporary, mm -hmm. as opposed to inward and eternal, right? That's a good way to put it. Does it have an expiration date? Does it have an expiration date? Now for the rest of this breakout, here's the plot twist, okay? You ready? We're gonna reverse the clock, run it the other way, and then the second point is to think about this, and you'll need a pencil for this. So that's facing death if this life, if this life is all there is. But wouldn't you know, the Bible gives us a different image to ponder, and it helps us to face life as if eternity is real, okay? That's, this is a, a different situation. We're not meant to face death and therefore grab onto the now. We're not meant to obsess about who's watching, who am I sitting next to, what is my online following doing? See, if we face this life and take, we're not supposed to face death and grab onto now. Let's turn that around and say, actually, we're supposed to face life and take hold of the life which is to come. That's what we mean by eternity. And friends, if you've tuned out, I want you to tune back in. Because this is the part that maybe you need to understand the plot twist. The pathway to peace is to understand that you are a citizen of heaven. The pathway to peace is to consider an eternity narrative that is in the Bible that calls out to you. I printed it on your sheet for you. Yes, this is about husbands and wives, but it's not about husbands and wives. This is from Ephesians 5. Please follow along with me. Under point number two, this is on your outline, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Stay with me for a minute here, because not only is eternity in your heart, so to speak, but God has explained to you, my friends, his eternal purpose. I want you to listen and hear the call of eternity in this image of a marriage. Do you see it? That's the second image. The first is Jezebel prettying up her head. The second is a wedding. And there are four fill-ins on your sheet, I believe. Here's the first one with a pencil. You might want to write this in. It says, we, we learn about eternity past. We learn about eternity past. In eternity past, Jesus loves the church. That's your first fill-in. Jesus loves the church. And that happened in eternity past. Megan and I um, are celebrating our anniversary next month. Woohoo! And it's, it's 15 years. That feels big, right? Isn't that? So on our anniversary, we always do the game of like, so who liked who first in our relationship, right? Remember that? And we can't really figure it out. And it's, it's funny and it's okay. And someone, I remember someone gave us an ornament because we got married in 2008 and it said, Roy's home founded in 2008. And it's cute, we put it on our Christmas tree. Okay, but however, friends, do you realize that if you do that game, if you think about who loved who first, and you put that into your relationship with the Lord, let's talk about your relationship with the Lord a minute. 
When did Jesus set his affection on you? When did this all go down? This whole you becoming a Christian thing. Paul, when he says that Jesus loved the church, he's already alluding to what he wrote earlier in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So when Paul says, let's talk about the love of God, he says, Jesus loves the church. What he means is that he set his affection on his people before the foundation of the world. The founding of your faith, this whole you being a Christian, even coming to a Christian conference, that's got deep roots. The roots are before, I don't know, what do you love? Before our nation was a nation, God formed a people. Before social media even was a phenomenon, you know, redemption was in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before people started to say, I identify as this or that or whatever the thing that really gives them a sense of buoyancy or purpose, God says, these are the in Christ people before the foundation of the world. And what a wonderful thought that is. That's a Christian identity that gives you a solid way to face the world, that eternity past, that's your story. Jesus loves the church. Here's the second thing we have in this passage, just from Ephesians 5. We have a historical fact, and it's that Jesus gave himself up for you. That's your second filling. Jesus, number two, or B, Jesus gave himself up. Yes, if you uh, get a chance ever to talk to an Olympian, I've never had that chance, but if you ask them, what did it take you to get gold? Here's what I think they would tell you. It took everything, everything, time, money, dedication, blood, sweat, tears. They probably gave up friendships, opportunities, every other hobby. A gold medal is costly. It's costly. And our world is full of things that shout for our attention. Give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. And, you know, if you imagine like a little toddler on Christmas, they always want more. The things that we give ourselves to. They always want more. You're always having to give yourselves up for these things. And the reality is you might not end up with very much to show for it. And so that's why this passage of ours uh, stands in just stark contrast to what the world says. The world says, give yourself to me. And verse 25 says, Jesus gave himself up for you. And that historical fact Jesus gave himself up for you. That cuts through the chaos of our world. It reminds us this is what matters most in this life. So you, you give yourself to these insatiable demands of maintaining your GPA or the ever-changing whims of fashion, but Jesus gave himself up for you. And, and the list could go on, but I want to encourage you to set your mind on this truth that Jesus gave himself up and anchor your soul in that truth because as you do that more and more your soul will find peace how much of the burdens of that you feel in life are because you feel like you have to do more and and be more and achieve more and give more and it's never enough you never feel satisfied but Jesus gave himself up for you that is the historical fact that, that, that Christianity is anchored in. Point number three, you want to write this in? There's an amazing present, and here it is. Jesus is sanctifying his people. That's the present tense. 
That's the present tense reality of eternity. This is in verse 26. Can I read it again? For he says, that he might, the goal of him dying, is that he might sanctify her, that's his people, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. So hang on a minute. Here, plot twist. Remember Jezebel? What was she doing? She is beautifying herself. She is beautifying her outward self. She is self-beautifying project in a godless way. But hang on. We read here that Christians are also beautifying themselves. There is an adornment that is incredibly important for you. There is a beautification that is happening in the life of a believer that is happening right now, except it's not an outward one. It is an inward one. It's one called sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying being increasingly in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church we read here is getting ready because God cares that you are increasingly cleaned up and that the blemishes are actually being removed, not covered up by makeup. And that's what's going down in the church right now. And it's happening to you if you belong to Jesus. There's a woman in our church right now who has cancer. And they're right now waiting on the results to see if the treatment worked. And talking to her schools me in this truth every time. Do you know why? Because she goes for transfusions and treatments and getting hooked up to things that causes her to lose all her hair. And here's how she explains it. She says, I'm getting this infusion and this chemo, but I know that what I'm actually doing in all of my suffering is I'm submitting to God's infusion of becoming more like mm. Jesus every day. And the suffering of this chemo is making my soul ready to see him. And friends, that is the plot twist and the, the narrative that really calls to us that somebody who says that is somebody who understands peace. Because our culture is obsessed with how things are presented. And here's a woman saying, inward beauty is what I care about. And friends, if you belong to Jesus, do you know even the hard things work for your inward adorning, for your inward good? And I know there's real heartbreak. I know there's deep pain. Don't hear me downplaying that, right? You, you, you come through those things, though. The promise of the Bible is that you come through them and you are more ready. You are more prepared to meet Jesus. That's the adorning. That's the beautifying of true Christians. Friends, it ain't makeup. It's this internal renovation project that Jesus has going on inside of you. I don't know if you've ever loved that or, or thought that to be awesome. You're getting ready. What are you getting ready for? Fourth fill-in, and then we'll close with this, is that there's an eternity ahead. Write this in, and we'll close. This is your last point. The eternity ahead is that a wedding is yet to come. That's what this image leads us to. Do you see how we've done past eternity, past temporal, amazing present, and then eternity future. Eternity future is that a wedding is yet to come. Verse 27 is where I see this. It says that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Do you hear the wedding lingo? So hang on. What is Jesus doing? He's wanting to present the church to himself in splendor. What's the goal of Jesus' beautification project and all of your sanctification? Is that there is a future tense wedding and it is to come. I, I love doing weddings as a minister, right? 
You know the best part about a wedding, right? At least in my opinion, it's when like the bride rounds the corner and the groom like loses it, you know? <laughs> Just happened last Saturday, we were at a different wedding. It, it's this emotional, it, I think it's the moment where the, where the wedding is probably charged with the most emotion. And the, the reason for that is there's all this labor, there's all this longing, there's all this physical and emotional and financial preparation and beautification, and they round the corner, and it's this, it really is powerful because what it's saying is you are the one that I've labored for, right? To get to this point, to see you, it, it's... It's charged, it's powerful. And God is saying, I'm choosing that image. That is God's chosen image for you to understand where history is going. So where's it going? You know, the stress in the world, suffering you have. Oh, I'm not downplaying that. The wounds that you feel. You know that time you're like, I really, really want to sin, but you said, I'm going to honor God. Doesn't that hurt? You know, it is moving somewhere. And here's where it's moving. It's moving so that when you close your eyes in death, you're going to walk down the aisle to see Jesus. And you will look at him and you will see your Savior and you will bring all of the pain and the suffering that you have endured. And why is that going to be emotional? Because he will say to you, you're the one I labored for. You're the one I was beautifying. And that experience of heaven. Man, a lot of theologians write about it. One says, it's probably to feel like you're being loved for the very first time. And maybe, if there is a sense, the only sense of regret we have, if we were to actually see our Lord who's prepared us, is that I think the only regret we'll have is that we didn't labor to serve him more. And this is what I'm calling an eternity narrative. And I wonder if people who are in the church have eternity amnesia. Because Jesus offers this peace in a way that the world does not give peace. Maybe we should rewrite our children's books. Happily ever after, maybe. I don't know. I think a, a, a more helpful way to say that, my brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, is that, well, not happily ever. You are secure in the purposes of God. And perhaps that image of contrasting Jezebel, friends, don't cling on to life or don't face death as if this life is all there is. No, we actually face life knowing that eternity Eternity is real. I want you to look back at that one thing that you jotted down, that one area that you're tempted to give yourself to or define yourself by, something that's outward and fading. And I want you to consider how could you, what is one step that you feel like you could take to prioritize care for your soul? Perhaps even maybe at the expense of of cultivating that one, that image. You know, what would it look like to cultivate a relationship with Jesus that would last forever, to prepare yourself to beautify your soul rather than just your outwards? And you can't change it all overnight, but we need to think about this phrase, one area, one step, one person. What's one area, one step you could take, and who's one person that you could tell who could help you with that? So just take a minute to jot that down, and we're going to look back at the, uh, 
the survey. On page 48, so there's no magical formula to this. Again, this is not a trap, I promise you. You'll notice that there's some questions here. Um, some of them have to do with your priorities. Some of them have to do with how you perceive negative feedback, et cetera. Maybe a way to use this tool could be, did any of these get your attention when you filled them out? If any of these rows got your attention, if you surprised yourself with any of your answers, my encouragement perhaps is, would that be an opportunity to take page 48, show it to your staff worker and say, let's talk about this. I was surprised by my own answer here, right? That could provoke discussion about whether perhaps some of your stress and anxiety has to do with outwardness or temporal, temporal things. We have five minutes for any sort of discussion or reaction from the audience, and then we'll have to wrap this up. We're going to close in prayer. We have five minutes to know if we have provoked any discussion, reaction, or questions. You, you, we have a mic runner, so if you'd like to say anything, we're going to be very intimidating and stick a microphone in your face. Now they don't want to say anything. <laughs> any, oh, do you guys have thoughts or questions or comments? We'd love to engage with you for a little bit. Or maybe we could ask this, which of these 14 things did you have the strongest reaction to? That's another way to say it. Oh, wait, just another minute. Thoughts, questions? Um, so I guess my question is, one of, one of the ones that really uh, spoke to me was the fourth one from the bottom. It says, I compare myself to other, to other people's personalities and achievements. So my question is, what is the difference between looking up to someone who, is, who might be more mature than you in, in something, and, and where's that line between looking up to them for guidance and like almost idolizing them, being like, oh, I want to be this person kind of thing. Where, where's that line? That's a good question. Anytime there's a where's the line question, you know the answer is, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> one of the signposts, I'm guessing, would be the effect that that comparison, I use the word comparison. What you're talking about is healthy aspiration and admiration. We would say godly imitation, right? I think the effect that it has on you can be a telltale sign of it. So uh, there are wonderful mentors and people who have helped me over the years. And usually you feel very delighted and helped by, say, by, by their example. Ungodly comparison generally leaves you saying, I suck at everything, right? I don't know if comparing my, and usually we compare ourselves most of the time with peers, right? I don't compare myself to someone who's way, 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 right, like older than me or just, there's just apples and oranges. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. It's a way of self-comfort and self-soothing, I think, is comparison. Comparing myself with peers in an ungodly way has never brought me joy. It can only bring me pride, I'm better than them, or serious grief, I suck. So I look to the effect of it, whether it calls you into increased godliness or it just wrecks your soul. Or if it presses you to, to focus on the outward, outward adornment. Like I look at Brian and Liz Parker, I'm like, oh my goodness, my heart is stirred to do evangelism more right. as I watch them. That is a good and godly, healthy comparison because it makes my soul want to love the Lord more. But like you were saying, the effects, if it makes me want to buckle down and kind of control my image and defend what people see around me or, right. or get this thing in order because that's what I think looks good, that's a, can be an unhealthy, dangerous comparison. Yeah, that's a great question, Connor. Yeah. Was there a comment from Oka? Oh, 
Can you um, maybe speak to the difference between <clears throat> like taking care of yourself and trying to make yourself look good? For example, like if you have really bad acne, is trying to like fix that saying like, I want to look really good or is it taking care of myself maybe? You want to go? That's, that's a great question. That's a great question, Jared. Yeah, so if Jared's question is, how much do we prioritize the actual care of our bodies? And, and I would say, I think the same thing. What effect does it have? Is it at the neglect of our soul? So is it, and, and part of the thing you can ask is, there's a difference between caring and stewarding what God has given you. You need to steward your schoolwork by doing it. You need to steward your friendships by, by investing in them. You, you need to steward your body by caring for it. Um, and that is a really, really good thing. What consumes you, though? What consumes your thought? What lengths are you willing to go to to get this thing or to achieve this thing? And, and that really is a conscience question. There's no, there's no measuring stick, but it, there is a... There is probably a lot of gray. And, and that's helpful clarification, because <laughs> what this workshop is not saying is that you should just, just care about your soul and who cares about your body. You're bipartite, which means God made you body and soul. There are two parts to you. You have a body and you have a soul. And we believe in the dignity and the goodness of the body, which is why we believe in the resurrection, that Jesus is going to give you a new body. So I am not saying, who cares about the body? Just, just whatever. No, we, we care for both. What we tend to see now is that there's a neglect of one. Yeah. So we're trying to say is we're trying to accent. I don't think most people need help caring for the outward things. I think generationally, we're pretty good at that. It used to be the opposite, where people would say, bodies are bad. Let's just care for your soul, right? And now I think we're maybe on the other end. So that's why the accent is there. I would use the word of stewardship, yeah. self-stewardship, not self-care. Yeah, um, my question is, what are some practical ways I could be setting my mind on eternity on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, how can I be growing in that way? We don't have a lot of time for that because and, um, I'm not just trying to dodge and close in prayer or something. <clears throat> Here's one. I, think, I like to think, Justin, if, if the Lord Jesus would return, which the Bible says he will. I don't normally think about that, right? I'm just doing my thing. If the Lord Jesus would return, and I would have the joy and delight and my soul, and I would see him. Would it feel like talking to someone who I haven't spent time with for years? Or would it feel like a delight because the friend who I've spent time with is here, right? A little bit of a difference there, right? I think that can be an indication of whether or not I feel like eternity, let's, let's go. My mind is there. I think for many of us, it would feel like, I feel like there's this Jesus guy I heard about way back. You know, like I talked to him one time. Feels like an ancient, long-lost friend from my childhood, like I'm reconnecting with. Would that be what the return of Jesus would feel like? Or would it be a person I'm in regular communion with coming to get me and coming for his bride? That might be an indication of how we could increasingly set our mindset on. Because it would be a regularly cultivated thing. I think we should probably think every day of the reality that, that Jesus is a person and I'm going to see him. And death is my path towards that. Uh, that helps kind of anchor in, yeah. in the eternity. We're, we really are camping before we get to go home. 
I was gonna say just one more practical. If you're driving a car and you see a dashboard light come on, you should stop and open up the hood, right? And check out what's going on or call someone who can open up the hood for you. Uh, I, I do think when you feel unsettledness in your life, our temptation is to be like, turn up the music, pretend it's not there, try to fix it on our own. I really think that's an opportunity to open up the hood of the car to really for, self, for introspection and say, what am I giving myself to right now? And, and how, how could I actually replace that with, with the reminder of, of what the Bible promises, of who God is, of what he's preparing me for? Because usually unsettledness in our life is an indication that there's something going on, something we're giving ourselves to. It's just not, it's not given back to us. So that's an opportunity, I think, for self-reflection in the day-to-day. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the secure, eternal purpose that we have. Before the foundation of the world, you set your affection on a people that you, you drew and marked out a people for yourself in Christ. God, help us to not cling to the things of this world, but to recognize the joy and the glory that is laid up for us. God, help us to set our hearts on it. Would that cause us to not complain, but to to have an unfading, unassailable um, joy for what is ahead? I pray that you would give us that perspective and that would be life-changing from this point forward in Jesus' name.